Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome to an amazing Saturday session continuation of Surah Al-Tawbah, day two. Um, of course, as always, I have to call out the amazing khutbah from yesterday. It is not yet named because I was literally just cramming watching it as we were finishing, as we were getting, walking up here. Um, yesterday was one of these crazy days. Um, but I heard probably 95% of it. And what really struck me again, Sheikh talked about how the body of women have actually become sort of where this proxy war is getting fought for colonialism and how you know we have so many things happening in our world that are just truly devastating um, that Muslims are absolutely silent about. I mean, this is an ongoing theme, um, but you know, when we get into the examples of, for example, Yusuf al-Karadawi passed away and the people that he was very close to, um, you know, he's, he's a, a towering figure in um, Islamic studies and upon his death, very few, like none of the organizations like Al-Azhar and the organizations that he was involved with, Bin Baya, who was his, you know, uh, like partner in developing a lot of things, um, none of these people spoke up when he passed. Um, and then, you know, to talk about other issues that are happening in the world, or not talking about other issues, like even, you know, obviously the Uyghurs, what's happening, um, you know, it's just devastating. Um, the, the fact that we are silent is so just, and we talk, but we're not silent when it comes to things like hijab or, you know, whether you wear it, whether you not wear it, um, all of these sort of petty things. And this is a very, uh, as Sheikh described, lazy, way, weak way of fighting against colonialism. It's not really a fight. It's like, let's just talk about women's bodies. Let's talk about whether they're covered. You know, we can feel good about ourselves as long as we're on the right side of this, or, you know, Sunnis and Shi'is can talk about how much they hate one another. Um, that's where the battleground for, you know, standing up for your faith is. Yet, while everything around the world is comes is, is crashing down um, around us. Um, so, and, you know, not the least of which is the Hindutva movement now, which, um, you know, the Hindu nationalist movement, which has discovered that one of the best ways for them to, you know, achieve their goals is to, one, learn from the Zionists how to um, truly um, silence and, you know, basically kill off Muslims, and that the way to do that is to invest money um, in increasing Hindu nationalism here in America, also now with the help of the UAE and the Saudis. And so there's a lot of detail, um, a lot of really important understanding and learning in the khutbah yesterday. So I highly encourage everyone to go and watch it um, for, you know, September 30th. It's amazing. Um, and, you know, these are, um, these are really difficult um, khutbahs to listen to, for sure, because you, you know, are confronted with what is happening to Muslims as they are decimated around the world. Um, but there, it's so important for us to know and start with education and then, you know, try and figure out what we can do. And if nothing else, um, what, you know, what we can contribute or, or maybe donate to for those who are fighting on the front line. So, um, you know, one of, and, and at, the, at the heart of so much of this is the dehumanization of Muslims, um, how people can so easily allow these things to happen and not feel like they even need to comment on them because they don't think of Muslims as humans. So, um, you know, it's really important on the flip side of things um, to highlight the work that people are doing to humanize Muslims, to tell the stories of Muslims. And, um, and in that spirit, actually, I wanted to share something that is actually, well, hopefully maybe give us just a moment of break and pause um, and for a little bit of, you know, 
levity, um, I wanted to share something very exciting. Um, Rami season three is out. Um, as people might know, if you've been following our work, Rami Youssef is a comedian. We actually had him at Asuli and we had a conversation with him shortly after he had season one. Um, and season three was just released um, yesterday. And um, there's, I, I think I mentioned to people over the summer, we had this secret mission that we went on where we actually had canceled the halakas for a Tuesday and a Saturday. And we couldn't talk about it back then, but now I actually can talk about it. So um, Sheikh and I were actually invited to be part of the Rami show after shows. And so we actually traveled to New York and we um, filmed with them in conversation. And it, this is part of this you know, really important effort to have people converse and humanize Muslims. And so I was actually very proud to um, be a part of that. And you know, we had a wonderful time, but we also you know, had a chance to talk about um, you know, issues that um, Muslims confront um, you know, at, at all different kinds of levels. And so Rami, um, as a show, has been known to be very controversial. Um, a, lot, you, you know, a lot of times people like look at it and they go, oh my god, I can't watch it. It's too far out there. And other people feel like it's right in line with pe what you know, current issues are um, that Muslims are confronting with, you know, the, confronting that no one really wants to talk about. Um, and when we had Rami in conversation with us you know, back a few years ago, um, right after season one, he had a chance to really talk about what his motivation was um, in, in creating the show. And it's, it's his story, but he wanted to create something that people would talk about and you know, have those conversations. So whether it's about sex or relationships or you know, how you deal with your parents or you know, how you think of your faith, um, you know, how do you navigate being a Muslim in, you know, in this modern age. Um, it has done a lot of really important things. And um, in this season in particular, um, we were able to actually watch this in advance um, of being part of the after shows. And so you know, we had a chance to get a preview. He does some really, really important work in terms of talking about Palestine and showing Palestine in a very humanistic light in a way that it hasn't been talked about. And also, like the recent show Mo that came out, which Rami was also a part of, um, you know, th this is the first time that you see people talking about Palestinians as if they are human beings, um, sharing some of those stories of pain and suffering. And, you know, and this is really important work. I think this is where. Muslims have an opportunity to make a really big difference. So what I wanted to do actually is um, share with you, I know you have to have a subscription to Hulu, but from what I understand, I think um, the after uh, show uh, episode, there are 10 of them, um, one of them, the one with me in it, just came out on YouTube. So I think people can access that, like literally just came out within the last half hour. But what I have queued up here is I wanted to show you what I think was actually the most um, fun and interesting episode, which was with Rami and Sheikh. And I don't think Sheikh, Sheikh has not even seen this himself. So um, I thought this would be kind of a nice um, time to enjoy um, some of this wonderful work. So let me just put this on and, and enjoy. Okay, so here's the uh, Rami season three, and if you, this is on Hulu, so if you come down, you'll find the after show segment here. And so I was part of this one. Um, it's called One Cup of Tea, Can You Be a Good Person and Still Get Rich? And Sheikh is in the last one, which is, uh, he's actually in two. He's in the one called What Do We Do uh, When Laws Are Immoral? And this last one, Are We in Control of Our Lives? So this is the one that I wanted to play. Random question, but do you think you would ever do mushrooms? This is actually a random <laughs> question, but do you think you would ever do mushrooms? No. 
The prohibition is anything that compromises the intellect. Even if it expands the intellect and makes it smarter? Okay, where's coffee fall? I've never encountered anyone who commits a crime because they drank a lot of coffee or a lot of tea. I mean, I don't know how it nets out in Judaism, but... Yeah, I mean, I think in this respect, Judaism and Islam differ quite a bit because, you know, in Judaism, we have wine as part of many rituals. Right. Like, alcohol is something that is very celebrated in a ritualistic sense. So, mm. um, the whole notion of shifting conscious states um, is part of spirituality in Judaism. So, there's nothing against the use of psychedelics mm. in Judaism. So, pro-psychedelics, pro -psychedelics. anti-shellfish. <laughs> we, we do the shellfish, <laughs> but not, shellfish. The, not the shrooms. Yeah. The shellfish. I think these things might be connected. So are you, in Jewish law, is it permissible if I take cocaine? Just want to know where I'm, I'm going to stand with God if I do it. You know? okay. I'm not a Jewish law expert, so I don't know how to answer that full on. So. I wish Muslims would, would give the same response when, when it came to Islamic law. Oh, to not knowing something yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't know how profound that is. No, Muslims don't do it because they have access to Islam Q&A. <laughs> In this episode, the psychedelic kind of opens up a breakthrough of something that's kind of underlying that they need to deal with. It kind of becomes this this strange phenomenon of like, mm. okay, you're doing something you're not supposed to do, but then like, well, we're, was it written for you to do that? And I think that's the the thing that people who, who um, whether they're on a spiritual path or aren't on one, are always constantly debating when the concept of, of spirituality comes up. Yeah. You know, the whole idea of maktub, what is written, right? Yes. In Muslim culture, there is an enormous amount of um, misunderstanding about it, about this, because nowhere in the Quran does it say that things are predestined. I've often thought, if, uh, you know, why did I end up in the United States mm. while a lot of the people I grew up with who were never ever never able to leave Egypt ended up in prison mm, and mm. Um, political prison. It, it, it burdens you, right? I mean, right. It's like, okay, so God chose this for me. How do you express gratitude? Mm. Uh, how do you live up to the responsibility? I think most things we don't actually have control over because most things actually function in the unseen realm. Mm. And even just thinking about like, how much do you know about yourself and your body and the different things that are going on inside, it's we largely don't know much, actually. God's will complements our will. Mm. I mean, if you if you are determined to be a loser, you know, God will send you a lot of signs. God that you're will, a loser? Well, no, that, <laughs> to, to change your path, to oh, stop okay. being yeah, a loser. Yeah, 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 that'd be crazy. You know, I got those signs. That'd be crazy. If, you, <laughs> if you ignore the signs, then, you know, colossus, it's like, okay. Yeah, you just, like, triggered, like, a memory of how I even began writing, uh, like, you know, songs that meant something to me the day that I got arrested, like, mm. when I had, like, a, I got a gun charge. And I remember sitting in the car when we got pulled over, and nothing made sense. Like, I wasn't supposed to be arrested. Like, somehow the driver didn't have a driver's license with him. You know mm. what I mean? And then the insurance was just expired in his vehicle, so we couldn't drive it. And every single person that I called to come and pick up the car didn't answer their phone. Mm. And so then that led to a search where they found a gun and then I got arrested for the gun. And I was I remember sitting in the cell thinking, well, it's over for me. 
and I couldn't leave Toronto for a, almost a year. But in that year, I confronted, you know, so much that I was dealing with that I was escaping in the years prior. Wow. And so it was like all of those kind of experiences and those traumas getting co compounding led me to, I think, uh, to like, to an artistry that I didn't even think that I was capable of like holding in my body. But you know what? My dad told me that making music was going to keep me far from the faith, and I'm here sitting with the sheikh. <laughs> it's actually amazing. I really, no, I really just took it in that I'm here having a conversation with the sheikh because I wrote songs. Your, your dad was wrong. Music is a path to God. Yeah, it was a path to you, and you are close to God, and now I am, as a result of that, closer to God. But then... All of that feels predestined for me. You know what I mean? But, but if you would, if you would have chosen to to play video games, uh, it, you know you got the, the you know creative impulse, and you say no, I'm 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 gonna go play video games instead. You you thwart, and that that's why it's a, that's where the choice comes in. That's where the choice. Yeah, comes you in. were presented with an opportunity to do the alternative thing, and then, but and the thing is, like, would that always have been my like destiny anyway if that's what was written I, I don't think so there's the destiny a and destiny b destiny a if if you act if you choose to act on, on god's gift and destiny b if you choose to ignore god's gifts which actually is very much like video games so yeah, video right. games are profound <laughs> but i i i feel i mean I'm, I'm curious like even in your in your work hadar because it's 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 such an intersection between art and and spirituality, like, I mean, th that must feel like a present choice that's always there. Yeah, definitely. I think that sometimes when we think about God, we think of God as an external being, that in some ways it's like the divine will is being imposed on us versus actually God lives within us. Um, it's not really one or the other. It's actually more of a co-creation process. And I certainly feel this way as an artist and as a spiritual teacher. Um, that I'm actually co-creating with God, with the divine. So I make a step, God makes a step, we meet each other, and then we're like, we take a little break, we discuss, we're like, does that work out? I think it's also interesting, like, seeing with, like, Rami's character on the show, because, you know, a lot of times we make choices or we take actions and we don't think that it's going to catch up to us because, you know, obviously we're living in a time <laughs> where there's really such a high level of lack of accountability from multiple beings, multiple systems, um, and men, for sure. Um, and we see this also with Rami's character. That's, uh, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> 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 I like Rami character, you know, right, yeah, right. I mean, I'm going to just take the hit for all of us and say, yeah. Wow, thank you. We need yes, more men like you. <laughs> yes, and just tell me what, what's next. Yeah, yeah for me, I think that what it means to be a person who's devoted to God is to live in spiritual integrity, which means to have accountability. Yeah, I do think that idea of accountability is really interesting because I, I do think there's this thing for the character where there's this thing where, you know, I think people will feel all the time in their lives where it's like, well, is it too late? Right. You know? Yeah. And, and actually, that's one of the things that I think is really interesting because especially in that conversation about destiny, it's like we need to also unpack this dimension of time. Time is actually not a linear phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It's a simultaneous yeah. co-creation reality, which we see both from spirituality and from quantum physics and... I I that, that's that. what I try to say every time, like, a script is laid. Well, I'm going to say something else, but going back to that, for me, being able to be in relationship with the unknown is the heart of my spiritual practice. Because if I know, then there's no space for God. But mm. if I don't know, then there's infinite space for God. And mm. 
that to me feels actually really central to this conversation. Mm. I, you know, I've been lucky to have experiences in my life that, that felt spiritual. I mean, like even when I was like 19, I remember I, I had, I re all I wanted to do was act. And I didn't know if I should be acting or if I should be, you know, going going to college. And and and, and I was actually going to become a lawyer because I, I was like, oh, that's well. like professional acting in a different way. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to learn that. <laughs> no, I was, but but I I I I remember, you know, I had gotten uh, Bell's palsy where I couldn't move half my face for like seven eight months. You know, I I was unable to move it, and I remember thinking, wait, like I'm going to be an actor. But is this some sign? Is this some fate of like I shouldn't do it or I should do it? And I remember almost kind of like, yeah, looking really inwards, and I just kind of made a deal with myself as to what I wanted it to mean. Because I think there were people in my family who were like, look at you, you wanted to go out and do this acting, this comedy, and it's like you know, God took away your face. And then I remember being like, well, do I want to think about it that way or do I want to reframe it? And I remember choosing, no, actually, I'm gonna interpret this as, if I get better, then it's all I'm gonna focus on. <laughs> and if I don't, then I'll drop it. And then it did get better, and then I was like, okay, I gotta listen to this, and I'm just, this is all I'm gonna do. Yo, that's and that, that was like my own, that was my choice. Um, yeah, so I was saying that this, uh, this was really interesting when we went, um, we actually were talking, you know, in conversation um, for probably 30 to 40 minutes, and they got edited down to between 8 and 10 minutes. So you kind of get a, a flavor for what it was. But obviously this is so powerful because these are really interesting conversations. You know, they raise really cool issues. Um, yeah, and you, you think, you know, these are, well, I mean, they're Muslims, but, you know, these, this is a wonderful opportunity, honestly, to, to hear also Sheikh in conversation. So this is where, where you can really see a difference can be made in people thinking of Muslims as human beings with, you know, so much to contribute. So I, I really, you know, kudos to, to Rami and um, Adil um, and, you know, the whole crew um, involved with Rami. Um, I think they've done something really spectacular and inshallah may Allah bless it and may it really be helpful. Um, there's a lot of talk about Palestine in the after shows as well as in the actual shows themselves. Um, and it's it's bold, it's brave, it's it's really important. So I hope everyone will watch it and, and share it and let people know. It's nice to also be able to laugh. You know, humor is one of these things that I think um, can really be used so effectively, especially for Muslims, you know, especially when it comes to faith and issues that, you know, confront us at so many different levels. So um, anyway, I'm really, really grateful that we, we had the opportunity to do that. Um, I'm happy that I could share it with everyone here. So um, inshallah, you know, go check it out. And I'm so excited for our continuation um, with Surah Al-Tawbah today, day two. We'll see how many more days we have. Um, thank you so much for joining us. You're, you're in which episode? I'm in the first episode called oh, yeah. Can You Be Can You Be Rich and, and Be Good? Something like that. So that was fun. I was with uh, Amir Suleiman and Mustafa, the poet, and also Rami. So. It was, it was shorter. Not not nearly as good as that. That was great. <laughs> that was the best one. <laughs> so. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa subhanallahi al-aliyyil azim. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad. Khatamu al-Rusli wa al-Anbiya'i ajma'in. Al-Musa al-Rahmatan lil-Alameen. Wa ala alihi al-Athar al-Mayameen. Wa ala ashabi al-Mukhtarin. Wa ala man ittaba'u bi-Ihsan ila yawm al-Din. اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل وقدة من لساني يفقه قولي 
Yeah, I, I didn't uh, watch this before. I, I, I always get a cringe factor when I see myself on, especially something like this. Um, yeah, cringe. Okay. So we are with Surah Tawbah. Um, the Surah build, the Halakat the build on one another. So if you've missed uh, the, the past halaqa, um, it is critical to to catch up uh, because otherwise uh, you'll, you'll miss quite a bit. Um, but one of the, to, to um, recap so we can move on, where did we stop? Verse 10. Is it just the first 10? Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, we did 9. Okay. Okay, so... It is important to keep in mind that Surah Tawbah is revealed in that period in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is preparing Muslims for um, what is going to be a, a point of, of uh, a, a major rupture, and that's the passing away of the Prophet, and the conclusion of the Quranic message. And so we've talked about this, um, but further, having Zorat al-Tawbah is in this critical period from the time that uh, the peace treaty has been violated and Mecca is on its way to be conquered and then a, a series of events that culminate with the Battle of Tabuk and what that will entail also, and this is something I didn't emphasize last halakha, is the reclaiming of Mecca as an Islamic site. That you, you recall we've talked before that Mecca is a space, particularly the, 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 the Kaaba founded on the entire um, narrative of the Prophet Ibrahim and his son Ismail and that it, it is founded on the idea that it is a site of Tawheed. There is a very similar 
type of dynamic, by the way, was Masjid al-Aqsa in Jerusalem, the, the site of Tawheed. And Arabs, like the Jews, both, despite the, the message of Tawheed, uh, went back to idol worship. And if in the Old Testament, that's documented in, in, in numerous, um, I mean, the, 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 and, and we talked about why within the system of knowledge, the psychology of uh, ancient people, the um, idol worship, worship had such a powerful attraction. Um, the, it related back to the concept of if there is a superior God, the God of gods, so to speak, uh, that God, part of understanding the role of that God is that either that God is completely disinterested or that God, as Israelites often conceptualize of that God as um, a, a, completely vested in a tribal phenomena. So that God has sort of a favorite people and that God interacts with the favorite people as the, the, the beginning and the end, which is very, very common in, in ancient epistemology and the way that uh, ancient people thought. I mean, and of course it makes a lot of sense because in, in a world in which people, for the most part, had a very difficult time um, learning about the other without going through a great deal of effort, it made a lot of sense that all their understanding about existence was directed inwards, uh, meaning that they saw the entire world as the projection of whoever they are and whatever they are. Okay. So, very quick review. So, significant steps is that Allah comes and says that there is a grace period that although the treaty has been breached, you must give those who had breached the treaty a four-month grace period on top or in addition to the, the sacred months, the Ashur al-Hurum. And that beyond this date, you revert back to a state of warfare, which, as I said, was presumptively, in, in, I mean, the only reason and the, the modern mind often forgets this. The only reason that we don't have a state of warfare of all against all in the present moment that we live in is because of something called the United Nations Charter. And it, 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 it was something that the superpowers, after a previous failed experience, the League of Nations um, Treaty, the League of Nations Charter, which was which dissolved after World War One, um, 
but the superpowers basically of the world set up a structure where you, in a very nominal way, you have a choice not to join the this massive international worldwide treaty, the UN Charter. Um, you have a choice not to join it, but if you don't join it, the consequences in terms of the hegemonic power of the of the victors after the World War II would make your existence extremely difficult. So by the mere fact that everyone, nations, found themselves in a situation where they had no choice but to join this treaty, to become a signatory to the UN Charter. And the UN Charter, whether it, it, whether it um, in, in principle says a prohibition against wars and aggression, a prohibition against the use of force in international affairs, preserve, preserving the right to self-defense, but all of these are all radically modern things. Now, the UN Charter itself is valid for 99 years. You, you can either withdraw from the UN Charter if you don't want to continue to be a member of the United Nations, um, but you would have to have the, an enormous amount of autonomous power in the modern world, which is, is quite impossible. So no one withdraws from the UN Charter um, unless you know they, they have a superpower that basically is going to support their currency, support their trade, support their economy. Um, um, but, but for that charter, but for that charter, we go back to the presumptive state of war of all against all. That is the presumptive state. Now, how do you get beyond the presumptive state? You get beyond the presumptive state by basically either concluding treaties or developing a custom, a practice, a habitual practice where your custom, the customary practice you've developed is that you don't war, do war with X people or Y people. But Beyond these two exceptions, you go back to a state of war against war, of all against all. Now, I emphasize this because it is very important in understanding what the Quran did. When the Quran says in Surah Tawbah, as we saw in verse 5, that beyond the four months grace period, beyond the sacred months of Ashur al-Hurum, be in a state of constant alert, constantly ready to engage the enemy. The interesting question in this is the fact that the Quran created a four months grace period and the fact that the Quran affirmed the 
sacred months of so in other words the fact that the Quran honored a a principle of non-violence for even a period of time is the what is noteworthy it is it is what the, the the normative point that you take away but the fact that the, the the basically the quran says well there is no treaty anymore and the sacred months have passed so make sure that you are going to go back to a state of war because that's a presumptive state so make sure that you're ready for it and make sure that you don't lose that's not remarkable and, and that that is a, a consistent problem while people who study the Bible and who write about uh, war in the Bible uh, understand this point quite well because they're anchored as historians and they are they are not apologists they, they don't have to worry about whether they're being judged by the other you know the other it hardly passes even occurs to them as they're doing whatever they do about the Bible Muslims are in a very different state Muslims are constantly in a defensive posture constantly in an apologetic posture and apologists make horrible historians apologists create a normative world or create a, 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 a a, 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 a narrative that is divorced from, you know, the apologists twist the arm of history so that history will end up serving an ideological goal, which is just horrible for ideology and horrible for history, for both. Okay. So, you are then commanded you are then to resume it's not even so you will resume a state of warfare but in the state of warfare what is what is of interest as i emphasized last time is that you must be in constant state of readiness the idea that a muslim would be placed in this situation and um, fail to be ready is so you know the, 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 as Sheikh Ghazali uh, Muhammad Ghazali used to say that the idea of a, of a loser Muslim the idea of a weak Muslim the idea of a, of a Muslim who who is, is unable to confront challenges in life and overcome these challenges is so alien to everything that the Quran says and everything that was taught by the Prophet okay and within this however is a proviso and this is again what what is interesting is that remember however that this is not about dominating a people for the sake of dominating a people. Therefore, in all circumstances, you are not permitted 
to continue a state of war if the opponent shifts loyalty from whatever condition they're in to wanting to either be a Muslim or within the laws of the time secure a protected status in other words secure a non-belligerent status with Muslims and that's the whole idea of paying a jizya is that you're saying I do not want to be in a belligerent status with you so and as we said many times actually that the practice of poll tax was it was a common practice throughout the world you are if you are not a belligerent and there peace treaties without um peace treaties without consideration meaning without some type of exchange were extremely rare uh, either a peace treaty will involve one party paying a sum of money to another party or parties will exchange um, a surety and the surety was often that you exchange human beings uh, that are held as collateral for the conclusion of the peace treaty. So if you violate the peace treaty, I get to execute the 10,000 people that I hold. And interestingly, it is Muslims who rebelled against that practice of human beings as surety. In the ancient world, it was quite common. But that's another story. And, you know, because Muslims, ref re sometimes they, they, they did engage in it, but they were always, uh, they've always tried to resist it. And eventually they were successful in, in, um, in not practicing it, but it took, it took time. I mean, it took centuries. Okay. And of course, just to, uh, you remember six that another unusual um, uh, unusual institution, and that is the which was often abused uh, at the uh, at the time of the Prophet the right to sojourn ostensibly to hear the Islamic message. And as I said last time that it was often, this type of exception was often used to conclude trade, but the Prophet ﷺ didn't do anything uh, about it. And if, if uh, this is not clear to you, go back to the first halaqa, to uh, um, last week's halaqa, because we talked about this, I think at length. Okay. Okay.
So what is most fascinating about Surah At-Tawbah is that when it and again considering that the normal condition is the war of all against all you would expect a text written at the time that the Quran was revealed to absolutely give no explanation or justification for why you are fighting the Meccans. All you need to do is, if, if again, because I know that most people who hear me are not historians, but what you would expect a text written at this time in this time period is to simply say, well, there's no treaty, so go back to war, and that's the end of it. So what is actually remarkable is that there is a process of, if you will, ethical explanation or ethical justification for why is it that Muslims are in state of war with these people. And the ethical explanation is extremely instructive, not just for Muslims at that time, but for Muslims of all times. That you are fighting a people who are themselves without ethical principles. So notice, the, which is the verse we talked about last halakah, Kayf. وَإِنْ يَظْهَرُوا عَلَيْكُمْ لَا يَرْقَبُوا فِيكُمْ إِلَّا وَلَا These are treacherous people. These are not people who would treat you ethically if they had, if they prevailed over you, if they had, if they held power over you, they would not treat you ethically. لَا يَرْقَبُوا that expression, it's, it's like saying, if they had the chance, they would not even be decent towards you. So, in addition to this, and again, you notice in 10, they are aggressors because their attitude towards believers is that basically they don't have a right to exist. From this is what should capture your attention because that is what is unusual. But then I'll come back to, to 11 and 12, but you notice in 13 
what is, I can't explain to you how historically striking it is that the Quran says, it's like saying, fight them and remember that they're the ones who expelled you from your homes and they're the ones that started this warfare. For a medieval text to speak about who started a military conflict in the absence of a treaty or in the absence of a, a, an established customary practice is dumbfounding. It blows your mind because that's not how people of that age thought. It... it, it <laughs> If you, if you can defeat the other and you don't have an active treaty or an established customary practice, then that's what you do. You, you, don't, you don't need cause. The issue of cause and the whole discussion about just cause for war developed centuries later. But the, the, the fact the discourse of the Quran, if read carefully, clearly refers to the concept of just cause. Who started the conflict? Who was the aggressor in the conflict? And which begs the obvious question, well, what if they didn't start the conflict? What if they respected the right of Muslims to believe what they believed? What if they were an ethical opponent that were not intent on treachery with Muslims? In other words, what if they recognized the right of Muslims to exist? On the one hand, there is a part that you clearly see as part of the Islamic um, moral project, and that is the reclamation of the sacred space of Mecca. But beyond the reclamation of the sacred space of Mecca, the moral implications of the Quran talking about the reason you are in a state of war with these people is because they started it and they you know, threw you out of your homes and that they, they are treacherous and they don't respect your right to exist. And as we will see later on, it's, it's even the Quran even it, it emphasizes that, it, again, a, a historically very uh, unusual element, and that is, I'll, I'll show it to you when we get to it, because I, I, it's hard to articulate in the abstract. Okay. 
Okay. Oh, well, so let's go back to to uh, 12. وَأَنَّكَثُوا أَيْمَانَهُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ عَهْدِهِمْ وَطَعَنُوا فِي دِينَكُمْ فَقَاتِلُوا أَئِمَّةُ الْكُفْرِ إِنَّهُمْ لَا أَيْمَانَ لَهُمْ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَنْتَهُونَ So this is 12. Muhammad Asad translates it as But if they break their solemn pledge after having concluded the covenant and revile your religion, then fight against these archetypes of faithlessness who behold have no regard for their own pledges so that they might desist from aggression. Muhammad Asad's translation actually uh, uh, is interesting because it, it, it makes me, it gives me the sense that he was, he, he, he was reacting to the same things because just the way he chooses certain things. Um, so, Although the breach had, or it, it all indications are that the breach had already happened when Surah At-Tawbah was revealed. So although it's saying, we know the Quran often talks about things in, in, the, in, in the past, in a, in, a, in a present tense, or things that will take place in the future in the past tense, uh, which is a, a whole different uh, issue and a whole different other subject. Okay, but so notice what is noteworthy about 12, however, 11, no, 12, is that, so we understand the Quran talking about if, they, if, if they've breached the treaty, they made the pledge, they violated the pledge, so we have a problem. But Ayah 12 says, وَإِن نَكَثُوا أَيْمَانَهُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ عَهْدِهِمْ وَطَعَنُوا فِي دِينِكُمْ So if they violate their pledge or having violated their pledge and طَعَنُوا فِي دِينِكُمْ Revile your religion. The obvious question, why wasn't it enough to say that they violated their pledge? Here, is not just that they revile, they, they, but in the context that they do not tolerate your religion, which is a fascinating point. It is it, the, the consistent theme in Surah At-Tawbah is that in the same way that when, when Allah says that these are people that cannot be trusted because they do not that they do not honor you, your rights to exist that say in the same idea is in the expression meaning that it is not just that they violate a technical pledge, but their hostility to your religion is the heart of the problem. 
this, I mean, think of normatively what Allah is telling us. And as we we mentioned last halakha, that the obligation if to, to the 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 battle in peace is often much harder than war because in in order in peace to have the type of strength that would preserve your right to exist is it requires constant vigilance. And, and we'll see the result of this in a, in a second in Surah At-Tawbah. It requires constant vigilance. It requires constant determination. It, it, it requires the ability to deter aggression. If you are unable to deter aggression, then you will be unable to preserve a peace. Okay. So Allah reminds Muslims that they began this war, which I think is a, a, a very important moral normative point. Although in the tafsir you'll find that is not. Um, I mean, in more of the modern tafsirs, like tafsir uh, Rashid Rida or Muhammad Abdu, um, he does notice that, but he he doesn't discuss it from a historical perspective. He says, "Well, you know, if, if it's if the Quran says that they they were the initial aggressors, it must be that the Quran wanted to alert us that this is a critical point." Um, but the fact that it is raised as a relevant point in the historical context is very critical. And I, and I think that it, it, it points to the continuous relevance of this book and the normativities that it sets in motion. So, if there is an initial act of aggression, it is one thing when you talk about peace with a people um, in which there was a, let's say, a mutual misunderstanding without a clear aggressor, which in international conflicts happens all the time. Um, you know, a, a skirmish here, a skirmish there, things blow up, and it is really contested who is the initial aggressor. But this is a world apart when there is a clear injustice that has been committed and you are unable to address this injustice through a negotiated peace settlement. 
the, the morality of the Quran is clear. That you can't simply say, well, you know, too bad. Okay, so let's just move on. And this is even, you know, in 14, قاتلوهم يعذبهم الله بأيديكم ويخذهم وينصركم عليهم ويشفي صدور قوم مؤمنين. So, now there is, so the, the meaning first, because I, I keep, um, uh, so the translation of 12 that we talked about, but if they break their solemn pledge, after, or did, no, we actually already read that, so okay. Uh, so, um, Would you have perchance failed to fight against the people who have broken their solemn pledges and have done all that they would drive, all they could to drive the apostle away and have been the first to attack you? This is what I was talking about. This is 13. Do you hold them in awe? Nay, it is God alone of whom you ought to stand in awe if you are truly believers. And this is atakshuhum. This is if... Do, basically, don't fear them. If you, it is God that you should fear. Fight against them. God will chastise them by your hands and will bring disgrace upon them and will succor you against them. And God will soothe the bosoms of those who believe and will remove the wrath that is in their hearts. So, qulubihim so fight them first you should not fear them you should fear God fight them because God will make you the instruments this whole discourse about God will will heal your hearts heal your hearts about what it is not a personal vendetta. It's an issue of justice. The issue of people who started the aggression, people who have ejected, who have kicked you out of your homes. And so God, you will be the instrumentalities for healing your hearts with justice. So in other words, you will be the instrumentalities to achieve a just result, for justice to exist. There is an interesting debate. Is this a promise only to the Prophet and his companions in the, that specific battle? Or is this promise transferable beyond the implications of course are profound because if you say that this is just for the prophet then Allah is giving no assurance to anyone beyond the prophet and his disciples that this assurance was only limited to the prophet and his disciples 
if you say it has if if you say that this has a value beyond or application beyond being it, it then you would have to say that as long as you adhere to the principles not just of surah at-tawbah but of the quran in its entirety then allah is saying as long as you are responding to aggression and as long as you are addressing an injustice then and as long as you put your trust in god you Allah promises that you could be, you would become the instrumentalities, the tools for Allah achieving justice. I think that second interpretation is the only way that, the only thing that makes sense, because otherwise then the Quran is just a historical document of no relevance beyond its moment. But the in notice how ethically embedded that a Quran requires you requires of you to engage in a, to get to the point of saying, well, you know, I am becoming an instrumentality or I have the expectation of being an instrumentality of a tool for Allah to address an injustice. You must be at par with the moral demands. So to put it quite simply and quite bluntly, and, and you'll see in, in, in this in Surah At-Tawbah, and I'll, maybe I'll skip just ahead and, and let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Surah At-Tawbah will talk about Mujahadat al-Munafiqeen. It will talk about resisting the, the hypocrites within your society and will even talk about people who commit acts of dissension that are truly dangerous, like building Masjid al-Darar, which we'll talk about inshallah. But the nature of the just society that the Prophet ﷺ established prevented the Prophet, despite Surah At-Tawbah, being unrelenting in its criticism of the hypocrites, the dissenters against the Prophet ﷺ. We don't see the Prophet ﷺ responding to Surah At-Tawbah by promptly throwing those concerned in prison or executing them, or torturing them, or exiling them, despite truly testing the limits, I mean, testing the limits of 
tolerance within the parameters of the historical society that existed then and any other historical society that would exist thereafter. I think that the only reason that the Prophet ﷺ didn't move against the hypocrites in a preemptive fashion or even in a fashion that would neutralize the danger and the harm that they posed. And although we know that these are the same people who afterwards were re responsible for the apostasy wars. So it's not like they're harmless, cute people. These are people who, after the death of the Prophet, so why didn't the Prophet move against them? Any reasonable, truly introspective mind, it is the Prophet was underscoring the importance of a just society in which people have rights. All the people, even when they are committing politically, even when they're dissenting against the Prophet of God, they are still entitled to their dignity. And since there were no laws that would clearly prohibit in a, in a, in a or or even as we will see in a, in a even when it was clearly the prophet would have been justified in punishing these people but he would always err in the side of benevolence i don't think he was teaching us political naivety i think it was underscoring the danger of a society that feeds on each other, a society that persecutes each other. That society will not be capable of maintaining the types of ethics that the Quran established throughout the Mecca period and throughout the Medina period in order to become the instrumentalities of God's justice. And again, we'll see this as, as the Quran comes back and reminds us that the difference between those who are truly with God is that the, the philosophy of their life is about the pursuit of goodness and resisting al-munkar. Anyway, I'm, I've skipped ahead. We'll come back to this. Okay. So... Um, now, so after that, Allah is saying, okay, so fight them because you will be, in, you as at, at the time of the Prophet, you in fact will be the instrumentalities for addressing these, these inherited injustices that all of you know about and all of you experienced. I mean, consider this is another, consider everything. This actually, I, I heard Sheikh Muhammad Ghazali say, uh, um, there was um, a, 
there was a guy that asked him, I don't remember the name of the guy, but anyway, he said to him, um, we, you know, we live in a society in which the expression, the, the Quranic expression, or that the guys in the hearts of the believers is to be removed, is to be addressed. So, so it, it, there, there will be, you have a, 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 an injury in your heart, you have a sense of deep offense in your heart, something will happen that will then address that injury. So that kid asked Sheikh Ghazali, he said, we live in a society in which the believers, their hearts are full of injuries. I mean, you, we, from, they're numerous, from, you know, the way that a cop, traffic cop, treats you to uh, the way, what happens at work, what happens at school, the way that the teachers don't do their jobs, and that the, the um, uh, 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 then they charge you an exorbitant amount of money to do private lessons, they, you know, everything in society, if you are a believer, if you if you have taqwa, if you're actually a good Muslim, you are destined for your heart to have ghais upon ghais upon ghais. In other words, you're just going to be continue being charged with more and more and more uh, frustration and anger. And we live in a society where the means to address any of those ghais in your heart is practically non-existent. So you can't resort to law. You can't resort to, there's no institutional system. There's no procedural system. Um, and so how do we evaluate this? And just, it stuck with me that Sheikh Ghazali said to him, if the, 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 the living proof of how how the, how much we strayed away from Islam is the fact that we've created societies in which the mu'min rise rancor this 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 frustration will build in the heart of the believer into mountains without a means to address. Sheikh Ghazali was saying that you want a yardstick to evaluate whether you, ha you are a Muslim society or an un-Muslim society, look at whether a mu'min is destined to have ghais upon ghais built in their hearts and whether there are means to address it. And he was talking to, of course, you know, this was a very different time where still we had hope of change and hope of things happening and that we could do something. And say, you know, when you, he said, when, when, you, when you guys are thinking about the, the Islamic state to come, 
because back then we were dreaming of Islamic State and all of that. Think of what institutions you can build so that lies would not exist unaddressed in the hearts of Muslims. It, it, it was, I mean, I don't know if, if he even, no, I mean, Ghazali was, but, but it is, it, this is an entire philosophical outlook. I mean, he, he could, if he was a philosopher, he could have sat and expounded it in an entire social and political philosophy that you build a society in which the Allahis doesn't build unaddressed in the hearts of people. And if you have a society in which Allahis from a police officer that demands a bribe and you have no choice but to pay, or a police officer assaults you and you have no, you, you can't do anything, or a police officer cusses you by the mother and father and you have to shut up and do nothing, or and just because someone is a Saudi citizen, you know, uh, gets to humiliate the heck out of you, and there's no recourse because you live in a society in which the, the you know people are in in gradation according to the passport that they carry. Uh, it's an entire philosophical outlook. The, this element of you live in society in which the frustrated are the believers, and is there a way to address frustrations so that justice prevails? Anyway, it just stayed with me over the years. Okay. Because of 16, although Sheikh Ghazali didn't mention 16, but... Uh, I think it was obvious in, in the back of anyone's mind that Allah's challenge am hasibtum and to traku walam mayalam Allah ladina jahadu minkum walam yatakhiz walam yatakhizu min duni lahi wala rasuli wala mu'minina walija wallahu khabirun bima ta'amalun did you think and this is a rhetorical question in your understanding of the faith did you think that Allah wouldn't put you to the test to know those among you who are committed to jihad? And, and this second part, committed to jihad, and are not swayed by the influence or by divided loyalties or otherwise swayed by the others so that their commitment to God, to the Prophet, and to believers is unclear. It's like saying Allah is testing the purity of your commitment and your your jihad in a word 
your willingness to sacrifice, your willingness to sacrifice not just effort and hard work, but even your hawa, what, what, is, what are your natural inclinations wedded to? You see, if regardless of how a person tells themselves, I am committed to, let's say, I'm committed to jihad. I, I want to sacrifice in God's cause. But if there psychological framework if their impulses if their state of consciousness is working against them the jihad in itself will always be corruptible This is, this is exactly the idea that I talked about on a khutbah. Are you a clean vessel in which, is, the, the, if you imagine Islam is like pouring water in a, in a cup, is that cup a clean vessel or a dirty vessel? That's... Let's see how Muhammad Asad translates it. It says... Do you think you will be spared unless God takes cognizance of your having striven hard in God's cause without, oh, he translates that, without seeking help from any but God and God's apostle and those who believe in God? Uh, for God is aware of all that you do. No, walija is not seeking help. Ittakhazul walija is where you... Um, you confide in something, you embrace something. So it's like saying, God is, is looking at what you, your, your, your moral commitments, where your moral commitments are, what you've embraced as your guidance in life where your loyalties are. Ittikhaz al-Walija is what you, what you are naturally drawn to, to. It's not just what you what you seek aid from, but what actually attracts you. So if... Um, if I witness an injustice... And my natural inclination is, well, I want to draw closer to the stronger party, the unjust party. So, you know, I find myself wanting to go chat up the, the party that committed the injustice. That's that's Walija. That's what attracted you. That's what sort of your... And the nature of that vessel that... Your jihad will pour into, because if your inclinations are not clean, 
your jihad will run into the problems that Surah At-Tawbah will talk about in a second. Okay. Then, after 16, we shift gears to Surah At-Tawbah clearly asserting the Islamicity of Al-Haram. So it is clearly saying that this space, which was a space founded on monotheism, must be reclaimed as a as for its original purpose, and that is why ما كان للمشركين أن يعمروا مساجد الله شاهدين على أنفسهم بالكفر. It it cannot be that this sacred space is claimed by those who, in fact, understand and violate its sacred status, its status as territory space claimed by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. It is a masjid. And that Imarat al-Masjid has to be by من آمن بالله واليوم الآخر وأقام الصلاة وآت الزكاة ولم يخشى إلا الله فعزى أولئك أن يكونوا من المهتدين This is 18. So the care of a masjid and remember that a, Allah calls الحرم المكي masjid and refers to uh, what the Prophet والسلام, established in Medina as a masjid and refers to Qubbat al-Sakhra in Jerusalem as a masjid. And who must be in charge of such masjid? Man amana billah wa aqama salah wa ata zakah wa lam yakhsha illa Allah Um, who should tend to God's houses of worship except those who believe in God on the last day and is in constant prayer, understands what prayer is and in fact upholds prayer, expends in charity and stands in awe of none but God for only as these may hope to be among the rightly guided. Um, this has always has always I mean you know you, you go back and, and you think of, of the, the status of Mecca um, are the people who responsible for Amarat and Masjid people who stand and give the Trump administration billions of dollars and nickel and dime Palestinians and even cut off Palestinians completely and are these Islam yakshu I don't know. I mean, leave alone whether 
Israel used to allow Palestinians through the Jordanians a certain amount of autonomy in taking care of uh, Masjid al-Aqsa. Israel has steadily, um, especially after the quote-unquote peace agreements, capitulation agreements that um, the Emirat and Bahrain and Sudan and Morocco have signed, they've practically removed all authorities from Palestinians. I mean, you can you can you can't even change a light bulb in Masjid al-Aqsa without the Israelis being involved. Leave alone, decide who can come and who can leave. The, the imam, who, who gets to be the imam, you know, is controlled by the Israelis. If, they, if, you, if you appoint someone who says anything the Israelis don't like, they immediately get arrested then. So, and, and that dimension is, is completely absent from Muslim discourses. No one talks about what Allah says about the obligation of Imarat Masjid al-Aqsa and the reality of that Imarat al-Masjid. So we, we, we have an issue with both Masjid now, Masjid al-Haram and Masjid al-Aqsa. And it's completely absent. And you know, I, I have to admit, I don't understand it because I know that there are people who specialize in or who've read, read the type of material that they, they know what, what Sharia says about this on the basis of what the Quran said about this. But just the silence is definite, you know, utterly. Okay. Um, is it it's Maghrib, right? What time is it? Okay. Okay. Let's break for Maghrib. Don't go away. Don't run away. Um, we'll just pray Maghrib and come right back. Yeah, we'll pray two minutes. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We're at 19. أَجَعَلْتُمْ سِقَايَةَ الْحَاجِّ وَعِمَارَةَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ كَمَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَجَاهَدَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ لَا يَسْتَوِيَانَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ لَا يَهْدِي الْقَوْمَ الظَّالِمِينَ الذين آمنوا وهاجروا وجاهدوا في سبيل الله بأموالهم وأنفسهم أعظم درجة عند الله وأولئك هم الفائزون um, The same theme is up to 22 يبشرهم ربهم برحمة منه ورضوان وجنات لهم فيها نعيم مقيم خالدين فيها أبدا in Allah in Dahu Ajum Azim. So nineteen Ajaantum Sakayat al Haj wa Marat al Majid Wa Marat al Majid al Haram Kaman Amanabilla Walla Akhir 
وجهت في سبيل الله Do you perchance regard the mere giving of water to pilgrims, that's the sequoia, and tending of the inviolable house of worship as being equal to the works of one who believes in God in the last day and strives hard in the cause of God? These things are not equal in the sight of God, and God does not grace with God's guidance people who deliberately do wrong. Those who believe and who have forsaken the domain of evil and have striven hard in God's cause with their possessions and their lives have the highest rank in the sight of God, and it is they, they who shall triumph in the end. And then their sustainer, uh, their reward with God is, is then set out in 21 and 22, the, the, the glad tidings and grace and so on. The, the tafsir generally say that Sikayat al-Hajj was a, a, an honored age-old tradition, custom. Um, a, a family would be entrusted with providing um, water to pilgrims. Um, now, of course, to make sure that pilgrims to the Kaaba, um, where to to transport the water, to to distribute the water in a way that everyone who is thirsty can find water, was I mean it was a fairly complicated process. Amarat and Majid were the ones who were again a, a particular family would be entrusted with the upkeeping of. Masjid al-Haram, the, the cleaning, the fixing of, um, uh, um, if there's a t deterioration in the building, that they would have the, the, uh, the, the task of maintenance. Uh, and the tafsir generally say that what Allah is talking about is Allah is telling the Meccans, because the Meccans, their, their, their entire source of legitimacy and pride was that they would have the upkeeping and the maintenance of the haram um, and that they would also do the tzakaya, that they would also provide drinking water to pilgrims. And this was a point of honor and great privilege for the Meccans. So, I mean, it, it was if, who played that role of being the Saqi, being the, the provider of water to pilgrims, was a very big deal in Meccan society. And so, so much of their legitimacy in terms of their relationship to the Kaaba was in the functions that they performed, that we cared for this building, or we care for the maintenance of this building, and we, uh, we, we make sure that those who come as pilgrims uh, don't die of thirst, and so on. And that the Quran is, is telling them, you know, this claimed role, this this claimed function, 
is not enough that there is this claimed honor is not sufficient to legitimate your relationship to the haram that in fact um, legitimacy in terms of a genuine relationship with the haram has to be built on not just genuine belief but also a commitment to struggling in the cause of Allah um, and that then it is countering the the claim of legitimacy and and it's certainly the the I think certainly Surah Tawbah in the context of putting the Meccans in notice that Islam is reclaiming this site to monotheism, I think that it is quite a, a defensible um, interpretation of, of, um, uh, of the ayah. But there are other reports that you find in the tradition, again, whether claimed as occasions for revelation or not, but uh, these reports say that upon when it became clear that it that the um, Mecca will be conquered and that the Quraysh will not be able to resist. Muslims and as I said before, it was. It, it I'm convinced that Quraysh looked around, or the elite aristocracy of Quraysh looked around, and have found that they lost the the battle for the hearts and minds of the Meccan youth, and that this battle had already been won by Muslims, and that's why they they've lost the the will to resist. But that when it became clear that this is going to be, then most, certain Muslims started saying that all we would want to do, um, all we dream of doing is to have the honor of um, doing the, the job of Sakaya, if to, to, to basically fill in that job of providing water to pilgrims, or uh, in another, all the you know, if all I want is the honor of living the rest of my life being a cleaner of the haram, that you know, being the the uh, sweeper of the haram, the person who sweeps the haram and collects the garbage every day, or being the uh, the maintainer of the lanterns of the haram, because of course the, the haram had a system of lanterns that would be lit at sundown. And that was a function and a costly function. So it would usually be given to a family uh, that would then donate the money and be responsible for performing this job, you know, lighting the candles every day at sundown and then extinguishing the candles every day at uh, uh, sunrise 
making sure that there are no fire hazards, that etc. etc. And and the Quran comes in and tells these Muslims that and I think this is actually a really important point that if you think this is what the Islamic role of taking care of the haram is about, you're wrong. That it is not sufficient for you to just be functional caretakers. That is nowhere equal to people who actually are, and as we will see in, in Surah At-Tawbah itself, that the jihad in the sense of not necessarily just warfare, but jihad in, in all the senses of struggle in the way that of Allah. Now, this would seem like a minor point, but it's not. Because look at even Mecca today. Usually, the claim of legitimacy is, well, look, you know, we perform the functions of caretaking. You know, look at how well we keep the electricity lit. Look at how well, perhaps, we do the organization. We manage the traffic. But Allah, from the, from the very beginning, told us, they're not equal. Taking care, there is a moral quality about your commitment to sacred space and the taking care of sacred space. I think the loss of Jerusalem in itself is is a lesson that Muslims like, like Muslims are just horrible with history. They don't read history, they don't study history, they don't learn from history, which I think is is one of the huge reasons why we are in the mess we're in. They, you know, they they jump to hadith, they jump to fiqh, and they ignore history. Before you even get hadith without history doesn't make any sense. Fiqh without history doesn't make any sense. Look, travelers to Masjid al-Aqsa would attest, and I'm talking about even Orientalist travelers, the, the very same travelers who who then uh, played a critical role in um, in whether facilitating you know the 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 French attempt at reaching uh, Jerusalem unsuccessful attempt or the the British attempt most of most of the British army that conquered Jerusalem unfortunately was was staffed with Muslim soldiers but anyway uh, the actual care taking care of Mecca in terms of the, the the technical functions of of Jerusalem uh, was very well managed. I mean, people would attest that as they approached Jerusalem from the desert, it was always very well lit. 
very well. It was very clean. Everyone would comment about how clean and how shiny and how polished and how. But the type of jihad, the type of real struggle that would maintain Jerusalem as inviolable, as something that cannot be conquered, that's what was completely amiss. The, the focus on the superficials and the appearance and the fluff. And as a result, how, how long, you know, how, Jerusalem got conquered in, in a matter of days in 1967. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just incredible. Now, of course, yeah, but, you know, the, the Jordanian army itself was led by, but anyway. So, this again it it speaks to us through the ages now notice when you look at verse 20 20 itself which says that those who believe and who have performed hijrah migrated and have striven hard in the cause of God with their possession and their lives. They've done jihad with their possessions and their lives. Have the highest rank in the sight of God, and it is they who shall triumph at the end. The context of 20 seemed to actually indicate or to bolster the notion that 19 is not talking just about the bragging rights or the legitimate claims of legitimacy by the Meccans, but it's actually talking to Muslims themselves and their role vis-a-vis -vis Mecca. So, because 1920 is clearly talking about those who believed and did hijrah and did jihad with their, with their, their bodies or their lives and their money that they are superior to, superior to who? Superior to other Muslims. So it's saying that those who actually struggled and sacrificed, that's more meaningful in terms of their relationship to the haram as opposed to people who imagine that, oh, you know, the, the extent of our relationship is that, or the, the bragging rights will be that we will be the, the ones who keep the haram clean, or we will be the ones who maintain the haram, or we will be the ones who do the sakaya. Um And especially that Surah At-Tawbah focuses so much on dissecting the nature of hypocrisy. So it is, it makes perfect sense that before Surah At-Tawbah 
turns to the issue of hypocrites and, and hypocrisy and the role of hypocrisy in the Ummah, it starts out with this rather particular set of events in which people are, you know, imagining that they are going to get close to Allah by the formalistic roles they play vis-a-vis the haram, which would harken back to the old mentality of jahiliyyah, rather than your substantive sacrifices and your substantive struggle in the path of Allah. Okay. And so then, when we look at 23 and 24, it the context then makes sense. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَتَّخِذُوا أَبَاءَكُمْ وَإِخْوَانَكُمْ وَأَوْلِيَاءِ إِنْ إِسْتَحَبُّوا الْكُفْرَ عَلَى الْإِيمَانِ وَمَنْ يَتَوَلَّهُمْ مِنْكُمْ فَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الظَّالِمُونَ قُلْ إِنْ كَانَ آبَاءَكُمْ وَأَبْنَاءُكُمْ وَإِخْوَانُكُمْ وَأَزْوَاجُكُمْ وَعَشِيرَكُمْ وَأَمْوَالٌ اقْتَرَفْتُمُوهَا وَتِجَارَةٌ تَخْشَوْنَ كَسَادَهَا وَمَسَاكِنُ تَرْضَوْنَهَا أَحَبَّ إِلَيْكُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَجِهَادٍ فِي سَبِيلِهِ فَتَرَبَّصُوا حَتَّى يَأْتِيَ اللَّهُ بِأَمْرِهِ وَاللَّهُ لَا يَهْدِي قَوْمًا فَاسِقِينَ one of the most foundational revelations of the Quran because it it lays it bare it, it just and it's this is not of course the first time that the Quran says something like this but saying it in this context when Muslims have are, are have triumphed over Quraysh and the the sense from either the the those who are starting to talk about oh well you know what we're going to do for the rest of our lives is be the upkeepers of the the Kaaba or being the uh, doing the Sakaya or whatever that there there this this natural inclination oh well okay so now we can sort of relax and reap in the benefits of victory but it is at, at this point Surah Tawbah comes back and says first in 23 Believers, do not take your fathers and your brothers for allies if a denial of the truth is dearer to them than face. For those of you who ally themselves with them, it is they who are evildoers. This is 23 and 24. Say, if your fathers and your sons and your brothers and your spouses and your clan and the worldly goods with which you have acquired and the and commerce, whereof you fear a decline, you fear financial losses in other words, and the dwellings in which you take pleasure, um, and the dwellings in which... Um, you acquire and you're, you're, you 
you nestle in, sort of. If all of these are dearer to you than God and God's apostle and jihad in God's cause, then wait until God makes God's will manifest and know that God does not grace inequitous folk with God's guidance. فتربصوا حتى يأتي الله بأمره والله لا يهدي قوم الفاسقين. Okay, so first, there are reports when it comes to twenty-three that um, say these are reports. Some are reported by Mujahid, others are reported. Uh, by the way of Ibn Abbas, uh, that said that there were individuals who had, having converted to Islam, failed to do hijrah. And especially the Ibn Abbas reports say um, that those who had preferred, failed to do hijrah, that every time they attempted to do so, their spouses or their children would start appealing to them that if you migrate, uh, you know, we will have no one who's going to take care of us. Um, they would start, you know, basically putting emotional pressure and that they would then weakened and failed to do hijrah and a claim that at least in these narrations that this is the occasion for revelation for 23. now of course the problem with this is the chronology is that 23 is revealed in all likelihood after either shortly before the fall of mecca or after, shortly after the fall of Mecca. And the ayat that spoke about those who converted and failed to do hijrah were revealed much earlier. So it doesn't make a lot of sense that this would be the occasion for revelation of these ayat. That, you know, now in the seventh year after Hijrah, that Allah is talking again to the people who had failed to do Hijrah, when in reality, and this is a topic that has not been sufficiently researched, it seems like after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, those who had converted but remained in Mecca became the uprooting and the undermining of the power of Quraysh. I mean, Quraysh, as I said, woke up one day and looked around and realized it has lost the battle for the hearts and minds of the youth. And the aristocracy was there, but without anything that they could root themselves into. Um, which again, if, if you learn from history, losing the battle for the hearts and minds of 
the younger generation is the sure way to one way to ensure defeat if you know it, it is older people can can make determinations but unless it is the younger generations who still have that um, the energy uh, are feel connected enough to carry forward the to trust and to abide by the determinations of the older generations the battle is lost you 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 end up with a generational gap that has devastating social consequences again history time and time and i believe that these are sunan created by allah in a cone that you learn from um but this sunnah teaches you a great deal about why allah when allah's part of the part of the jihad of an older generation is in fact to continue making sense to the lower generation to the younger generations because if you don't you've lost the battle Anyway, there are other reports that say this ayah was revealed um, on the occasion or in order to comment on nine people who apostated from Islam and having migrated to Medina then went back to Mecca and again the chronology doesn't work because we already saw that it the it was the that it was the surah right before um Tawbah that talks about uh those who apostated and according to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, where then basically, and although it is contested and debated, you know, whether they were nine or less or more, anyway. Um, but something in the chronology, again, is problematic. And this is, has been noticed by, by commentators as well. And so some commentators have reached the point of saying, well, we, we, we don't know what the occasion. I think at this critical point and considering that Surah Tawbah is going to be laser focused on diagnosing the problem of nifaq, the occasion for a revelation is obvious. That Surah Tawbah um, knows that there is a um, 
this is part and parcel of the type of dynamics that breeds hypocrisy is there are families and as we will see and this is actually what exactly occurs with hypocrites there are families that can nominally convert to Islam but in a pattern especially after the conquering of Mecca or the recapturing of Mecca and in the events leading up to Ghazwat al-Tabuk, to the Battle of Tabuk, there are people who have nominally converted to Islam, but although converting to Islam, or sometimes even, which is, a, 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 again, a historical phenomenon that is not paid enough attention to, having an ambiguous status versus vis-a-vis Islam. People back then didn't carry ID cards. There were no passports. There were no ID cards. And so there are people who sat, who went to the Prophet after the, the conquering Mecca and gave a pledge of allegiance to the Prophet took the shahada before witnesses. But if you read all the reports about those who went and gave the pledge, it is no way it was the notables of Mecca. In other words, those whose absence would be noticed. But there are many individuals who there is no mention about them either giving a pledge or not giving a pledge. But some of these same individuals later on, we would hear of or we would read reports of tensions about either their children fighting in or after the death of the Prophet fighting in Hurub al-Ridda on the side of the army of, of Abu Bakr's army that their parents would oppose that their parents would actively try to get them and or, their, or in fact sometimes even complaints that their, their, their loyalty was separate from the loyalties of their parents. In other words, their parents were sympathetic not to the Abu Bakr's army, but um, were actually hoping that Abu Bakr's army would be defeated. We have the same type of these narratives in the Ghazawat of Umar ibn al-Khattab. So if you're doing a careful analysis, what becomes clear is that there are people who, although their children 
had converted to Islam and were zealous enough to want to fight in support of the Khilafat Abu Bakr or in the armies of Umar ibn Khattab, their parents were objecting. And from the objections of their parents, it is ambiguous whether these parents had were Muslim or not. In fact, some of these reports say the, the children are describing their parents as kuffar. So, the Quran is anticipating a very real issue. Very soon after the conquering of Mecca and when the tide has turned and there is a lot of incentives for people to have either Muslim status officially or to have ambiguous status vis-a-vis Islam, a lot of the committed are going to find themselves in a situation where privately, where the, the phenomena of hypocrisy that Surah At-Tawbah talks about, where their intents to perform jihad in Allah's path, to commit themselves to jihad, will be criticized by their families. And that is why in istahabu kufra al iman all forms of kufr istahbab kufr is to actually your hawa your 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 natural or your your whims are consistent with of not being a true sincere muslim believer and so the grafting of saying well this must be talking about those who didn't do hijra or this must be talking about those who committed apostasy it's a, it's a, it, it, it's forced there's no need for it it's clear that what 23 is doing is anticipating an ailment in what produces hypocrisy. Those who will convert but will soon confront the problem that Surah At-Tawbah itself will greatly elaborate upon of divided loyalties. Their families, they will have fathers and mothers and spouses who in every real sense are not real Muslims. And their preferences are not consistent with, not like the preferences of those who did hijra or those who have been committed in a state of jihad for many years. And especially, and I told you Surah Tawbah is preparing Muslims for after the passing away of the Prophet, especially after the death of the Prophet. It's one thing when the Prophet is alive and, you know, 
pushing the torch of jihad. But immediately, the thing that Abu Bakr confronts is what? Is the reality that Surah At-Tawbah, as well as Surah Al-Maidah, had anticipates and warns Muslims about. You are going to confront a, a point where real commitments are going to have to be made and principled stands are going to have to be made. And you have to be clear as to what your ethical universe is made of. And then this point is made even, even clearer, lest one says, after 23, well, you know, what does, what level of commitment is, is needed? You know, it, it, there are many gray areas. And 24, which is probably one of the most challenging revelations of the entire Quran that Allah lays it out quite bluntly and simply. Listen, if your fathers, your children, your siblings, your husbands, your wives, your clan, your tribe, your material possessions, your business, meaning your careers, or the homes that you cherish. Now, the homes that you cherish, because that expression, because it's, it's idiomatic a little bit. Um, doesn't mean that I love God more than I love the architecture of my home. It means being settled in my home is dearer to me than struggling in the path of God. It, put bluntly, simply, leave you, jihad is requires that you leave your home and you travel, and you go on the path of jihad for months at a time, years at a time. That expression means, no, I don't want to travel. I don't want to leave my home. I'm comfortable and I can't disrupt my life. So, and the, 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 that expression, wait until Allah, because Allah doesn't say X or Y will happen. It simply says, wait until you see. It's like saying, wait until you see the consequences of this. That is far more terrifying than Allah saying, so wait until you are conquered, or wait until you lose this or lose that, or wait until Allah impoverishes you. Because when you say wait until you see the consequences, leaves open two possibilities. 
that the lessons of the people who received a prophecy and failed the prophecy and were and suffered through natural consequences natural disasters natural disasters means god's wrath so like qawm ad wa qawm lut wa qawm and so on which surah at-tawbah will refer to late in in, in a bit but tarabbasu hatta ya'ti this refers to another segue or another possibility and that is the not a, not a, some type of cataclysmic wrathful event a destructive event like an earthquake or volcano or whatever but what Allah alludes to elsewhere repeatedly that you are no longer the khulafa Allah fil ard that the khilafa would be taken away from you in if you notice in khutbah after khutbah i keep emphasizing even in the uh, you know if i if i had a big audience if i had a bigger audience it would have mattered alhamdulillah i don't but because why i said something like um i talked about the sacrifices and the commitments of the zionist founders no victory of any people in history has been attained without major sacrifices that display a sense of it's it's like as if Allah coded this in Sunnatullah Fikkawun. When you look at the what gave birth to what the the, the trauma of colonialism, it was if you didn't have cumulative generations of people willing to risk everything get on a ship travel in the high seas risk never coming back as many of them didn't you know we we often focus on the the we don't focus on the 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 type of investments that went into victory that's the fact of the matter for every all the scientific discoveries upon which colonialism was built was founded on people who were experimenting and do you know how many scientific disasters resulted from experimentation until people found the the one thing that gave them the the type of edge the type of thing that allowed them the power without commitment to ideas without commitment to dreams without aspiring and saying i am willing to sacrifice all for what i aspire for don't expect victory it doesn't happen 
It just, that's the Allah's sunnah in creation. Every, imagine every trade route, every navigational route, every scientific advancement, the, the amount of sacrifices people who remain vested in what is familiar and people who continue thinking of well i have you know i i look to what my entitles are are uh, what my entitlements are and i do not place a commitment a principle an ideal before my relations or before my material belongings and that is why the expression i've always considered remarkably profound and also terrifying it's like allah saying okay fine just wait until you learn the hard way it is terrifying and so in, in a nutshell, unless you Muslims are willing to make the type of sacrifices, I mean, again, w w Islamic history is not claimed by Muslims. But I wish Muslim his modern historians would start re-examining the micro-sacrifices that were made we often think, we often read Islamic history as Muslims went to battle against the Sassanids and it was a victory. Really? You, you think you're taking on an empire with, with centuries of technological advancements and you just want a victory over them like that? The micro mechanics of this victory is mind-boggling the the attempt to win to, to, the propaganda wars if what we would call today in propaganda wars to win the hearts and minds of the common person in the street to get them to lose to break away from their priestly class to get them to disconnect from their willingness to sacrifice their lives for their shah and shah, their, 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 their leader, to lay the, put their trust in the hands of Muslims is a story that has not been told. Of course, Orientalists are not interested in the story for the most part. The, the investment in the in even just Muslims bringing in people to train them on the type of technological equipment and the building of, of, of military hardware so that they can fight the Sassanids is again a story that you can, you, you, unless you, you know, it's mentioned here and there in primary sources, but historians for the most part have left it untold. The story of Muslims and Palestine, Muslims and Egypt, 
the microdynamics, the thick description of the story, numerous acts of amazing commitment and sacrifice. In the same way that all the story, even the story of something like advancements in the history of Muslim advancements in the in the science of dissection. The obsession, the commitment, the willing to sacrifice your entire life to learn a language so you can translate texts just so you're able to read these texts and travel great distances, take enormous risks to acquire a set of knowledge just so you can achieve a relative advancement in understanding the function of a kidney or the function of the pancreas is, again, I've, I've, I keep saying it, part, if Muslims are a people without a history. And a people without a history can never challenge a people with a history. For all the but as long as you don't lose your commitment in the process as a Muslim, for all those Muslims who who want to counter colonialism, commit yourself to discovering Muslim history, but without losing your identity as a Muslim in the process. Because if by the time you make it, you're a historian, but you no longer think or feel like a Muslim historian, then we haven't achieved anything. Then you're just going to be another replica of another Orientalist. Dime a dozen. Useless. You know, they they write a history that interests them from their own set of moral and ethical and ideological commitments. And that is why they will never think about what is it that Egyptians found appealing in Muslims kicking out the Byzantians from Egypt? Why is it that the Coptic Church celebrated the Muslim victory over the Byzantians and saw the Muslims as liberators? And these types of... It, it requires good historians and committed historians and historians that approach their craft like a jihad like a, a, a complete, total, engulfing service. Okay. So, and notice, it is quite specific that if your commitments to these things is more beloved to you than not just belief in Allah, it's not just a matter of belief in Allah and the Prophet, but jihad, specifically jihad, in, in which, again, there is no reason for us to say jihad means qital. It doesn't. Jihad means a, a, a diligent application of effort and energy in the pursuit of a cause. As we all know, or we should know, 
that pursuit of knowledge is jihad. Talab al-ilm is jihad. Anything, you, in, in, if you pursue, for God's sake, if you, if you write a piece of music in which there, are, there is music that elevates the soul and that people listen to and they're immediately drawn to Allah. That's a jihad. It's a jihad. But it is the commitment and the sacrifice and the dedication that makes it a real jihad. What time is it? Um, okay, let's see. Okay. Yeah, let's go. Um, so, so, the revelation of Surah Tawbah, as I said, begins either shortly before the conquering of Mecca or shortly after the conquering of Mecca, probably shortly before, short period before, passing on with the Battle of Hunayn. And, and on to the Battle of Tabuk. You notice then 25 and 26, um, comments on the Battle of Hunayn by name. And again, so many commentators have taken this as sort of a disjointed shifts in as if the comment on the Battle of Hunayn is unrelated to, it is all in the Battle of Hunayn, which was fought with the tribes of Hawazan and Thaqif. After the conquering of Mecca, Muslims felt very confident Quraysh had all the, the prominent heads of Quraysh had converted to Islam. Um, and the word has gotten around that the great Quraysh has folded and many tribes had to recalculate their loyalties. Some tribes approached the Prophet ﷺ and said, we neither want to be with you nor against you and had a special arrangement, basically non-belligerence, that we don't attack you, you don't attack us. Many other tribes thought, you know, now it is Muslims who are going to be in control of the famous Meccan trade. We could do, there was no Medina trade to speak of, but Meccan trade, can we really survive without, it is not enough that we just don't attack them and they don't attack us, but 
the relationship we had with Quraysh, we need with the people who control Mecca now, because now it is Muslims who are going to be controlling Rihlat al-Shita and Rihlat al-Saif. It is Muslims who are now going to be controlling the Kaaba, and it is Muslims who are going to be monitoring that strategic position for centuries, people who wanted to trade between Sham, Syria, and Lebanon, and Palestine, and Yemen, and, and between Yemen, and Iraq, and Yemen, and Egypt, and Egypt, and Yemen, had to, it, it was that route, going through Mecca. And what tribes like Hawazan and Saqif were saying, there will be new trade routes that we can go around the Muslims, don't worry about it. Many tribes weren't convinced by that. How are you going to invent? In we know these these trade routes for centuries, and now you're telling us that you're going to cut new routes, new routes in in the desert, and it's going to happen to go through the lands of Hawazan and Saqif. It was too far stretched. As a result. The truth of the matter is, is that as a result, many tribes approached the Prophet and said, oh, we're interested in Islam. What is this Islam about? And the Prophet would then send people to go travel with these tribes and live with them. And, you know, and some tribes, as we know from Harub al-Radda, in fact, it worked. And they became sincere Muslims, and even after the death of the Prophet, they remained Muslim. Other tribes apostated right after the death of the Prophet. So although 60 Sahaba or 20 Sahaba, as the case might be, lived with them for six months teaching them Islam, when the time came, we discovered that Islam hadn't penetrated very far. This is yet another micro-history in our history that's not told. I mean, if I had several lifetimes, you know, I, it's really sad. It's just, it's so aggravating because it's, the material is there, everything is there, but it is the, 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 the Muslim, you know, Muslims are interested in sitting there and, and arguing about hadith and, and pretending to have, instead of actually doing work that, Anyway, so so now, as so this gave Muslims a huge boost of confidence. Now we're being approached. We don't have to chase after people to tell them about Islam. They're coming to us, and they are very cognizant of the fact of who we are, and the. In fact, and the word gets around that if if the the you know the the, the culturally sophisticated Quraysh had given up and become Muslim, um, people were becoming Muslim by the droves every day. Um, now. 
Hawazan and Saqif, which were interesting tribes because Hawazan and Saqif were not, the irony is that they were not allies of Mecca or not close allies of Mecca. They were sort of grumpy, jealous competitors to Mecca. They got along with Mecca. They never had, uh, you know, they would have the normal feuding here and there. But the poetry of Thaqif trying to get bragging rights over Meccans was very well known. And to a lesser extent, Hawazin. And they were, you know, they, they uh, it's like, you know, we are, we are, we're cool too, you know, why do you get all the attention and all this wealth and all this trade and so on? And I'm not, it is, again, we don't know all the, the details, but, or at least I don't know. I'm sure if, if dedicated historians could probably uncover it. But how is going to Saqif got in their mind that they this is the right time to make a bid to convince the, all these tribes who are becoming interested in Muslim power or are in awe of the Muslim achievement to tell them, listen, we can be the new kids on the block. And they made it very clear that they are in defiance of Muslims and in fact had very unkind things to say about Quraysh in the sense, oh, you've defeated Quraysh, well, you've defeated losers anyway. Of course you've defeated these people. They were always spineless. And they seem to be preparing for what we would call a blitzkrieg surprise attack on Medina to hit Muslims as their forces, as they thought, their forces are still concentrated in Mecca, will, will invade Medina itself. And of course... And again, I wish we would learn, this is the prophet of God. He didn't wait long, wait until Allah comes and tells him there is a danger from Hawazan al-Saqif. It is his intelligence agency that informed him that Hawazan al-Saqif are making plans to invade Medina uh, while your forces are still in Mecca. He didn't, as... Some people wanted to do didn't didn't uh, rush back to defend Medina. He decided to go and meet uh, Hawazan al saqif in a in a location called Hunayn, which is close to the the lands the territories of Hawazan al saqif but um, but. Not in the territories. I mean, it's sort of two-thirds of the way. 
אוקיי. מוסלמס sent out the message. We want our allies to march with us against Hawazan al-Sakhif. Muslims for the first time, their army outnumbered their opponents. And they looked, according to the reports, although I have, I'm skeptical about these numbers, but what they, the, the sources say is the Muslim army was 16,000 and the army of Hawazan and Saqif was 4,000. I'm skeptical about the, the number 16,000 versus 4,000. I think probably the Muslim army was smaller than that. But anyway. Um, but clearly Muslims outnumbered the army of Hawazan and Saqif. Hawazan and Saqif seemed to have miscalculated the, the Muslims' call for their allies to join them. And when they saw the Muslim army mushroom into this huge size, they said, oh, nuts, what have we done? They had a council, do we withdraw, do we give up, do we surrender, do we convert to Islam? The decision was made, no, by, you know, we, by old sort of, we, we will fight to, to the last man. And Muslims entered this battle extremely confident. We've won battle after battle when we were far greatly outnumbered. And now that we greatly outnumber our enemy, we're going to be defeated? Not possible. So, in fact, this is precisely what happens. They enter into battle and subhanAllah, Hawazan and Saqif are rout the Muslim army. And the Muslim army find that the, the Hawazan and Saqif start, you know, 4,000 are shooting arrows. They find their people are dying left and right because they were very masterful in, in in hitting their targets at, at distances and panic sets in and they, they, they there's disorganization and they're routed and um, and the 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 what takes place is a chaotic retreat so it's not an organized retreat it's a retreat in which people are running away According to the sources, they say that only 133 from the Muhajirun and 60 from the Ansar, the Prophet ﷺ refused to withdraw and 
133 from the migrants remained with him. They refused to withdraw. And 60 from the Ansar refused to withdraw. And the rest were, were in, in um, a chaotic retreat. And the, the small group that remained in battle turned the tide of battle. When those who were chaotically retreating saw that there is this small group that remained steadfast, it inspired them to come. Now, so the reference in Ghazwat Hunayn, in the surah that dissects the phenomena of hypocrisy, there is nothing disjointed in this. It is as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, understand first that if your value system, your, your commitments, your principles are not in order, your, your wala, your, your loyalties, are not in order, you're in trouble. And if you don't understand what jihad is about and you are approaching jihad from a practical or opportunistic perspective, I want to appease my mother, I want to appease my husband, I want to appease my wife, I want to promote my career, I want to promote my... So when Allah says فَتَرَبَّصُوا حَتَّى يَعْتِ Then wait until you see. Well, the consequences that you see are right there in the Battle of Hunayn. You could actually have every advantage going in, but still lose everything. And I don't think it is at all a coincidence that once again, time and time, Allah demonstrates to us that it is a small group that remains steadfast to principles and steadfast in its uprightness, in their taqwa, that turns the tide of the masses. It is as if the masses, you know, are like, you know, they blow with the wind. They come and go. But it is a minority that can make all the difference if their commitment and their jihad is all sincere. Where the people who panicked and withdrew in Hunayn hypocrites, well, to one extent or another. See, hypocrisy is in all of our hearts. Unless you are the Prophet Muhammad والسلام, or Ali bin Abi Talib, radiallahu anh, the hypocrisy is in all of our hearts. 
it is at what level of hypocrisy does toxicity set in? What level of hypocrisy does it poison whatever good you can present? To tell yourself, I want a heart without hypocrisy, it's like saying, I want to be entirely consistent in everything I do. The only entirely consistent people are insane people. Inconsistency is, in, is, is part and parcel of, of how rational human beings are. But it is how much. Because if you're, if, if it's, all of us, certain amount is natural, but you get to a point where it becomes toxic. It takes away the barakah. It takes away the iman. It takes away Allah's aid, where then you truly become subject to wait until you see the consequences of the nature that you induced upon yourself. The nature that you've created for yourself. Okay, this is a good point to stop with. That's what I'm, so let's stop here. And come do the honors. And we'll continue, inshallah, with next halakha. Okay, alhamdulillah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, amazing, as always. Let me just share some highlights as I was taking notes um, for this for this section that we covered. Um, the importance of um, just cause for war, like introducing the idea of just cause and just society, something that really wouldn't be developed until you said much, much later. Um, but the idea of like, you know, who started it, who, you know, what what is the um, relationship to those people who revile your faith or don't believe you have a right to exist or you know don't honor your right to exist or are hostile towards you um, or would be treacherous against you if they are in power um, that that is something that is completely um, against what was the common practice or common understanding at that time where you were just basically at war with everyone um, and understanding um, you know what uh, when you're telling being told to fight the hypocrites um, as instrumentalities of Allah and that Allah will heal your hearts. Allah wants to test the purity of your commitment. What are your loyalties and your natural tendencies um, and attractions? Um, do you have a clean or dirty vessel or you know how is your vessel? Um, and uh, you know understanding that if you do as you know, all the things that Allah is asking from that ethical perspective, then you can become an instrumentality. Um, of Allah, um, then the the covering, uh, taking back Mecca, and that Mecca is being returned to Islamicity, and the faith in um, striving, and the sort of what is substantial, like you talked about, you know, what's inside versus outside, but the idea of, you know, we, we have this example of, you know, this is not about upkeeping Mecca from a physicality perspective, but it's actually from your internal, like how, you know, are you striving for God? Um, and then I thought what you said was really powerful, the idea of um, how important the battle for hearts and minds of your youth. I mean, this is something obviously is really important for our time and age and how the jihad of older generations is to continue to make sense to younger generations. Um, and 
um, the verse 24 and the power of it that you know if you're basically if your family and your stuff and your life is more important um, you know you're this, like not wanting to leave your comfort zone is more important than striving um, for Allah and the Prophet um, peace be upon him that you know that is just a true measure and just to wait um, it's such a important um, I guess heuristic for even understanding where where you are in your mindset and then this idea that there are no victories without major sacrifices and that people have to be willing to risk everything and you know when I think about like what that means for our time it's it's like can I imagine Muslims making these kinds of major sacrifices it's almost like we've reached a point where people don't really know like what are they sacrificing for which to me again underscores the importance of this education here in this halakha because knowing what the Quran says knowing what what is part of our tradition and the wealth of everything that we've been learning um, if people understood like what the Quran had to say to them for our time I would feel like people would be so um, they would feel like they have actually something to sacrifice for they under they would understand the power of this message um, and then the idea that um, what you just said about masses blowing in the wind um, but that um, it it's a minority that can make all the difference um, and we see this in so many different examples but if you know if people if that minority is sincere and committed um, then that can make all the difference and the last point that you made about hypocrisy being in all of our hearts but understanding where does that at, at what point is that level of hypocr uh, hypocrisy toxic and um, takes away can take away the barakah or blessing of God um, you know that's it adds such a nice nuance because we always keep hearing oh, you know hypocrisy is sort of a black and white kind of proposition but when you understand that it's everyone has this level of hypocrisy it's, it almost gives you a little bit of like permission to be human and to think about analyzing yourself and turning internally and um, questioning like where are you um, in your commitment and on this journey so for what that's worth this was an incredible session thank you so much um, every time there's just so much to internalize and learn and unpack um, and thank you for allowing us to understand our book in this most profound and beautiful and rich way alhamdulillah so i'm so excited to continue on day three next week inshallah so thank you everybody for being with us wonderful to see you have a great week and assalamu alaikum, assalamu alaikum. Yay!